You're listening to the Diplomats podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmesan from Washington, D.C. So, Prashant, here we are at the uh, end of 2018. Um, for mm-hmm. our listeners, we've recently taped a couple episodes that are a little bit forward-looking with uh, elections and flashpoints to look forward to in 2019. And uh, I know that there's been some requests for that, so I hope that was were useful. Um, but we thought for this episode, which is going to be the last episode we record uh, before the change in the calendar year, uh, Prashant and I would reflect on some of the bigger trends and events in Asian geopolitics over the past year and uh, reflect a bit on um, what they really meant and how these events really can be made sense of uh, as we get to the end of the year and look forward uh, to a new year in uh, in 2018. So. Each of us picked three topics, uh, so we'll be discussing six topics in total over the course of this episode. Um, and I'm not going to spoil it at the beginning of the episode, so you just have to listen to uh, see what we've identified as the biggest uh, trends in 2018. Um, but I think a good place to begin, Prashant, and this was actually one that both of us had identified, is the you know 2018 was really the year where America first in the United States started to become more of a reality in practice. Um, And I think, you know, we talked about last year about the old adage that, you know, personnel is policy in Washington, D.C., and the Trump administration was staffed with many individuals at the cabinet level that didn't necessarily share Donald Trump's view of America's role in the world and America's role in Asia at a visceral level. Um, So last episode, we discussed, obviously, Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis's departure. He's the latest figure to leave the administration, um, but also figures like uh, Nikki Haley, figures at the National Security Council prior to John Bolton's appointment, including even H.R. McMaster um, and, you know, even uh, NSC staff members like Nadia Shadlow, Tom Bossert. Um, and other members of the administration on the financial, uh, on the economic side, certainly uh, Gary Cohn was uh, among among that group as well. He departed earlier this year. Uh, Dina Powell left right at the beginning of the year. Um, but broadly, I think what we've seen this year is a hollowing out of personnel that might disagree with Trump on the America first approach to foreign affairs. And on the flip side, um, we've seen the foreign policy staffing um completely become replaced with uh, loyalists to Trump um, who may or may not have their ideological uh, differences with the president. Um, but certainly in, in other areas, we've seen folks that do share the president's uh, view that the United States has taken advantage of. Uh, John Bolton's an interesting figure here because he's an old he's an old name uh, right from the Bush administration years. Um, and he's back and he certainly does bring something to the table for Trump with his uh, skepticism of multilateralism more broadly. Um, so what would you have to add to that? I mean, I think, I think that's really, you know, one of the biggest uh, takeaways from this year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, you framed the different aspects of those very well. I mean, the, the first is the, the departures, which I think has been really the most striking component, right? So if the notion was that the Trump administration was, I think there were individuals with this view that there were some adults in the room that would help manage Trump and and his foreign policy inclinations. So whether it was Mattis or Tillerson, McMaster, uh, Kelly was was another one who was seen as sort of helping to manage some of the White House management. But all of those individuals have essentially either been replaced already or are going to be replaced by by early next year. Um, And so the question is, uh, are 
or the, is the departure of those individuals going to lead to a foreign policy that looks more and more like President Trump? So that's one aspect of that. Uh, the other aspect of that is that, the, as you pointed out, the new individuals that have come in, whether it's uh, John Bolton or the ascendancy of Mike Pompeo, for example, these are individuals who have a more of a hardline uh, traditional view of, of American foreign policy, whether it's the, you know, the use of force or um, perhaps some skepticism about multilateral institutions and some of the other instruments of U.S. power. So if these individuals grow more authoritative and the, the United States grows uh, a little bit more jaded with some of the other traditional ins uh, instruments of U.S. power, might we see a more sort of hard edge towards U.S. foreign policy and, and the use of American power? And then the third component of that is the fact that um, it's really a continuation of last year where we're seeing a lot of positions still remain unfilled, right? That's right. So whether at the lower level of the administration and the bureaucracy, we've been careful to emphasize on this podcast, and I think we should continue to do that, is there's a lot of focus on high-profile cabinet positions, but really at the low level, uh, a lot of the staffing hasn't been done. Key ambassadorial appointments um, haven't been filled as well. And it's important to remember, you know, we talk a lot about chaos and disorder in the Trump administration, but the Trump administration hasn't really seen a high-profile foreign policy crisis confront it that's been unexpected. And every administration does confront it at some point or the other. So if a foreign policy crisis comes to fore, how will these various aspects of uh, worldviews, uh, staff, personnel changes, how will all of that interact uh, in terms of how the administration manages that? And I think that's a key point for 2019. If we do see a crisis like that, I think we'll see a lot of these dynamics kind of coalesce and come to the fore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think this point is actually a good segue into the second uh, topic that we wanted to discuss on this retrospective, which is the um, the trade war, which was really in the realm of expectation and rhetoric in 2017, becoming a reality in 2018. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that sort of speaks to the uh, underlying you know transition from America first being more posturing to becoming more reality in 2018. So. You know, the trade war in earnest kicked off on July 6th this year. Uh, that was the first day that uh, the tariffs were actually imposed. Um, and from then on, I think, you know, markets started to take this more seriously. And I think we saw the associated increase in volatility in global markets as the United States and China began to impose reciprocal tariffs on one another. Um, obviously, we had the G20 encounter at the, um, at the end of November, uh, leading to a a truce between the two sides that's uh, up for review after a 90-day period in uh, in early 2019. But I think the realization of the trade war has really um, left uh, the region kind of reeling at the prospect that, you know, Trump's advisors, uh, folks like the U.S. Trade Representative uh, Robert Lighthizer, Trump's advisor on trade at the White House, Peter Navarro, um, that these characters are having an important influence on the president's thinking on economic policy. And that's had sort of huge reverberations across the region. So, you know, as of today, um, as of the end of the year, uh, the total range of U.S. tariffs applied exclusively to China cover $250 billion in, uh, in imports from China. And Chinese tariffs in return are at a lower level of $110 billion, but could be increased. Uh, China decided to stay those increases after the G20 meeting, but that could, again, be part of the escalation next year. So yeah, absolutely. And I think... Um, as you pointed out, I mean, there's various prisms through which you could view this, right? One is through this this perspective of um, growing U.S.-Chinese competition. Uh, the trade and economic component uh, has been one key aspect of that that we've seen. 
and the and the issue is you know one of the central considerations is to what extent is you know and to what degree is this going to last uh, into 2019 right um, is it going to accelerate you know, who will back down first what are the consequences for uh, individuals in the United States including Trump's base but I think the the other aspect of this which we've discussed briefly as well when we've talked about US China dynamics is you know how does the region feel about all of this right there's been this conversation about um, to what extent does this generate costs uh, among those in the region? But also, um, you know, what are the impact for uh, supply chains uh, in various aspects of economic management? What are the consequences, not only for uh, those who might actually lose with respect to the trade war, but if companies do move some of their operations overseas, it could be some countries that benefit to some degree, at least to a, to a marginal extent in terms of this U.S.-China trade war dynamics. But also, I mean, I guess towards the end of 2018, I mean, there are investors and individuals that are growing more uncertain about the direction of the U.S. economy as well. That's right. And so and so, all of these dynamics seem to be contributing to the broader sense that, you know, what all these countries in the region are confronting their own domestic and regional dynamics. But what if we see, you know, dynamics or movement towards a U.S. recession, uh, a souring of, of the on, on the U.S. economy? How could all of this play out in 2019, I guess, is, is, is the broader lens through which individuals are viewing this. Yeah, I think a big factor sort of uh, informing Trump's willingness to progress with the trade war was the fact that markets were rallying regardless of what he was doing uh, with China policy, mm -hmm. at least for a while. But I think, uh, you know, as of late, we've sort of seen him lash out at the Fed and uh, really kind of show distress at the fact that uh, we appear to be entering a bear market in the United States and possibly a, a recession in, in 2019 right before uh, or at least mm -hmm. right as the uh, 2020 election season starts to kick off. Um, so I think in 2017, uh, one of the reasons, you know, skeptics of the trade war would at least point to the fact that Trump was too beholden to, um, you know, corporate America to effectively move ahead with the trade war because of the effect that that would have on uh, on global uncertainty and markets more broadly. So it'll be interesting to see if uh, if that has any bearing on Trump's willingness to push forward, you know, even at the end of this 90 day period, if um, if China doesn't make the kind of concessions that the United States is looking for, will that play a factor? Um, and it depends on, you know, who you ask uh, for for folks like Lighthizer and Navarro. I mean, this is really kind of the core purpose for their, you know, it's the core of their mission in the administration. And mm -hmm. Trump has long shared, you know, an ideological sort of dislike of Chinese trade practices, uh, what he perceives as China taking advantage of America. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, if if they uh, do decide to push ahead, even if markets um, show that they're not quite happy about the direction in which things are going, which I think is pretty apparent at this point. Yep, absolutely. Um, so I think from there, maybe we can talk a bit about um, the broader kind of strategic frame that the United States has had. Um, I know that this is very U.S. focused so far, but I promise that the last three are less to do with the United States. Um, but you know, the the Indo-Pacific um, concept or strategy um, or geographic descriptor, depending on which capital you're sitting in, uh, has certainly become a lot more popular this year. It's become a lot more visible as a uh, as a theme in the in the foreign policy messaging of uh, major democracies in the Asia Pacific, uh, namely the four uh, democracies of the Quad, uh, Australia, the United States, India and Japan. And and Prashant, I mean, we saw it kind of put front and center at the Shangri-La Dialogue in 2018 mm -hmm. in Singapore. 
Um, what's your what's your appraisal? You know, as we end as we end 2018, um, is this Indo-Pacific business really? Does this have legs? And uh, where you know what was really the difference that was made this year with with the way that these countries approach this issue? Yeah, I mean, I think there are two parts to that. Um, I think the first part is that um, in terms of a U.S. approach to the region, I think there were some doubts when the Indo-Pacific and the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy was initially rolled out by President Trump and APAC and in Vietnam, whether this would actually coalesce into anything of significance. And I think that question has largely been answered in the sense that uh, the administration, key administration officials, including uh, Mattis and Pompeo, have gone to the region and laid out the security aspects of this, the economic aspects, some of the diplomatic aspects of it. Um, and it really does seem to be an organizational concept for the administration, at least uh, so far that we've seen, uh, in terms of how it views the region. Uh, but I think the second part of that is the regional reaction to the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy by the United States. And we saw some of this at the Shangri-La Dialogue. And subsequently, um, essentially, if you were to boil it down and, and you know, sort of take a step back, um, different countries and key regional actors have been essentially rolling out their own visions or their own strategies or their own approaches or their own previous strategies to the Indo-Pacific. Um, and I think that's a proxy essentially for grave uncertainty about the extent to which they want to embrace the Trump administration's notion of a free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, which is a marriage of strategic considerations, including the rise of China that these countries share, but also more America first notions such as, you know, the withdrawal from TPP, uh, fair and reciprocal trade that these countries uh, may either oppose or may not be comfortable with simply because it, it doesn't jive with some of the broader regional trends that we're seeing, including, you know, the advancement of the CPTPP following the U.S. withdrawal, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's a it's it's a mixed picture. So the the Indo-Pacific and the free and open Indo-Pacific, it's something that um, there's there's a U.S. conversation that's going on, but there's also a regional conversation about what various actors uh, can contribute in this sense, whether it's Japan or India and, and even some European states for that matter. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, I think one of the big issues to underline, too, with the free and open Indo-Pacific, and I think, you know, Mattis's departure kind of captures this well, is that uh, you can have officials at the working level and even at the cabinet level sort of present strategy documents and uh, well-informed speeches about what the administration's Indo-Pacific uh, approach is, what are the principles informing this approach, you know, things like international law, freedom of navigation, uh, really, you know, familiar ideas from the Obama administration's um, pivot and rebalance and a uh, principled security network uh, rhetoric. But then, you know, when you have Trump necessarily, uh, you know, throwing into doubt some of these uh, principles with his own actions and own behaviors, um, I think that causes serious concern in the region. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there are still, you know, valid questions about U.S. commitment, particularly among allies. I mean, um, you know, Mattis's resignation letter that we discussed on the last episode really had strong undertones about the way in which the United States is treating allies. And one specific area, you know, to think about right now is the finalization of the U.S.-South Korea Special mm -hmm. Measures Agreement, which is set to expire on January 11th. Um, that's the agreement on burden sharing within the alliance. And uh, they haven't come to an agreement on that. And uh, it's very possible that we'll see the uh, previous agreement lapse without a, uh, an accepted draft by both sides. Um, but I think, you know, um, a development like that will be, again, felt across the region. So it doesn't matter if, you know, Indo-Pacific Command is uh, or Pacific Command is renamed Indo-Pacific Command or if officials, including Mike Pence, you know, go to Asia and talk about 
how much they uh, value a free and open Indo-Pacific if there isn't really buy-in all the way to the top, given the nature of uh, the U.S. Um, the U.S. political system and how um, and how much power the uh, executive has over the implementation of foreign policy at the end of the day. So I think, you know, 2019, I think, will really be uh, a testing year for the Indo-Pacific concept. Um, and yeah, you know, there are, I think you highlighted this well, that there are uh, disagreements and differing perspectives on what the Indo-Pacific means. You know, for example, when we were at the Shangri-La Dialogue, we heard Modi, uh, you know, say pretty much point blank that for India, the Indo-Pacific isn't a strategy or an approach. It is a geographic descriptor mm-hmm. um, that sort of uh, synthesizes a coherent strategic space for japan it is a strategy but it's also a geographical descriptor that kind of goes back to abe's you know 2007 confluence of the two seas speech um so japan i think has really been the proactive driver behind all of this um and i think what will be interesting to see is uh you know if we do see a maturation of the quadrilateral we're already seeing increasing trilateral coordination between those four countries um, it'll be interesting to see if that expands and if other countries are sort of brought into the fold you know candidate countries here being um, potentially Vietnam, the Philippines, potentially even Singapore uh, coming into that uh, Indo-Pacific fold without sort of getting at the issue of ASEAN centrality, which is another issue to talk about. Um, but, you know, speaking of Southeast Asia, I think, again, a good transition here for us to maybe talk a bit about the South China Sea, where I think in 2018 we really sort of saw the crystallization of a new normal that we got a good sense for in 2017. Um, but, you know, Prashant, as, a, as someone that spends a lot of time in Southeast Asia and watching the region, um, what, what would you say are the big things to take away about the South China Sea after this year? A couple of things. I mean, I think in one sense, um, there's been a ongoing conversation about uh, the South China Sea increasingly becoming uh, a platform for U.S.-China competition or U.S.-China rivalry. And I think on that front, um, the Trump administration came into office uh, increasing the focus on freedom of navigation operations and I think hardening its overall approach towards China. And there was a sense uh, in the region, uh, a bit of confusion about what would the role of the South China Sea be in all of this? And I think as we discussed in previous podcasts, so far we we haven't really seen a concretization of a new U.S. strategy or approach that would considerably change the dynamics in the South China Sea beyond the usual notions around diplomacy, uh, continued statements, uh, some cost imposition measures. We saw like the exclusion of China from RIMPAC, which was a big one, but no real follow-through measures subsequently. But on the other hand, with respect to China, we've seen a crystallization of what the China's, Chinese approach is, which is continued militarization of the South China Sea while also trying to pick apart the various claimants in the South China Sea and Southeast Asia and keeping the diplomatic track alive with the code of conduct in the South China Sea, even though we're not really confident where all of that is going, considering the fact that the Chinese have postponed that uh, several years uh, down the road now. So that's one piece of that, the the sort of U.S.-China role. And the second part of that, which has been the sort of real, I think, disappointment over the past few years, is um, the the notion of pessimism about the role of ASEAN and South uh, Southeast Asian states' roles themselves. I think there's a real resignation. Uh, we talked about this before with the rise of President Duterte in the Philippines, um, that uh, ASEAN as an institution and individual Southeast Asian states, um, the role of multilateralism has really been put under strain, uh, given the fact that China has made a lot of progress and they've also made a couple of deals with key claimant states, uh, notably uh, the Philippines. Um, I think 
there's it remains to be seen to what extent Southeast Asian states uh, will take their own individual measures to consolidate their own claims in the South China Sea. We saw this with Indonesia and its construction of military facilities recently. Um, we've seen from the new old uh, Malaysian Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamad and his statements on the South China Sea. But I think in terms of the broad picture of the South China Sea, we, we've really evolved uh, to a conversation about um, the new normal being uh, continued Chinese inroads in the South China Sea. Southeast Asian states essentially, you know, in it for themselves in terms of what they can do, but also a, a, still an uncertainty about the U.S. role in all of this. You know, is the United States really interested and committed with respect to the South China Sea issue? Yeah, I think I think that's all right. I mean, I don't I don't think I have uh, much to add on top of that, except that um, really, yeah, we have seen that crystallization of the Chinese fate accompli this year. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, next year again, if um, if regional and extra regional states, including, you know, countries like the Fran um, the French and the British, um, bring forward a more assertive posture towards the South China Sea. I think um, one interesting development this year is that I think we've really seen Japan uh, for the past three years now um, step up its um, expeditionary sort of involvement in the region. Mm-hmm. The Japanese haven't undertaken uh, anything like joint patrols, but uh, they are conducting exercises and are regularly transiting the area. So this year, you know, uh, JS Kago was, for example, trailed by the Chinese Navy. I think the Japanese are very much uh, committed. It was interesting, actually, there was a North Korean sanctions enforcement action by Japan in the South China Sea of a, of a ship-to-ship transfer. So the Japanese are really kind of um, really kind of stretching their wings when it comes to um, becoming uh, involved in, in you know, things like freedom of navigation and uh, supporting uh, the rules-based order uh, in that in that part of the world. Um, yeah, that's, I think that's a, that's a really important point, I think, because um, you, you have seen, you know, there's focus a lot of times, and we've discussed this before, on freedom of navigation operations. But the, the focus in terms of outside countries on presence operations um, and these sort of uh, things that we were talking about, like after exercises that countries do occasional interactions in the South China Sea before ending those engagements, that has become a really routine development in 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- whereas it might have been sort of news headlines in, in, in 2017. That's really important. Um, and the other aspect of that is, as you pointed out, I mean, these strategic spaces, the South China Sea, the Indian Ocean, uh, Northeast Asia, a lot of these things, they interact, right? So if India takes a more proactive approach to the South China Sea, you, you see the Chinese playing out more in the Indian Ocean and so on and so forth. So I really think the the sort of, um, I guess, the, the the merger of strategic spaces with together with this notion of the Indo-Pacific is a really interesting trend to monitor in 2019, too. Absolutely. Um, well, so, you know, while things are going well for China in the South China Sea, I think one area where we sort of saw headwinds for Chinese uh, foreign policy in uh, in 2018 was with the Belt and Road Initiative in Asia, where I think we have several examples of the outcomes of democratic elections um, producing an outcome that's negative for China's Belt and Road Initiative. So here are the examples that I might point to include um, the Maldives most recently, uh, Sri Lanka on some level with the, uh, I guess, the undemocratic outcome of the constitutional crisis that uh, sort of threw further uncertainty into uh, the future of China there. Um, Malaysia is a big one. Um, you talked a bit about that earlier with um, Mahathir Mohamed's return to the top mm-hmm. in uh, in May and his subsequent um, review of Chinese finance projects that had been uh, undertaken by his predecessor. And finally, the big one uh, in Pakistan, where uh, Imran Khan has, uh, you know, he has inherited a Pakistani economy on the verge of a balance of payments crisis. And 
has come to power at a time of greater scrutiny internally of the conditions that Pakistan agreed to um, for the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, kind of the crown jewel of the Belt and Road Initiative. And I think across the board, we've seen these kinds of outcomes pose a problem for China. And yes, it's true that in other, in other parts of Asia, China has taken steps forward. For example, with Nepal this year, uh, the Belt and Road did move forward in a in an important way with the uh, with the unified um, communist Marxist government there, um, really consolidating power and uh, crystallizing a uh, a less India dependent foreign policy, or at least a, a direction toward that. They do um, they do remain dependent on India in the short term. Um, but I think you know this this trend. I think is really um, is really something that I think we're going to see more of, especially as the you know the Belt and Road just hit five years um, earlier this year, and countries are now finally starting to feel the implications of projects that might have been agreed to three, four, five years ago, and uh, the consequences are really coming to heel now. And um, the reaction in the domestic polities in many of these uh, Asian states is is not necessarily positive towards China. Um, and in other areas, you know, even um, I think one interesting example is the squandering of goodwill with Papua New Guinea after mm-hmm. the. Uh, the uh, apex summit there and the behavior of um of certain chinese representatives um so i think uh, you know throughout the region i think there are sort of headwinds now for for chinese engagement i don't think these countries are necessarily going to pivot away from china just given the the sheer value of um economic engagement with beijing but at least for the belt and road i think um 2018 has sort of shown that you know there are cracks to this initiative that it's not the kind of unstoppable force that it was sometimes portrayed to be Absolutely. Uh, and I think the the interesting aspect of this is, you know, the, the, the notion of pushback against the Belt and Road, it really has been felt globally. Um, you know, I think, you know, I was on a trip to Europe earlier this year, um, and it was interesting there to see how the European view on uh, the Chinese inroads on the Belt and Road initiative, you know, they're very growing attention to not just the opportunities, but the potential challenges, not only for individual states in Europe, but also European integration and the European integration project. Um, and this broader conversation about um, the Indo-Pacific as well. Um, and the notion that uh, Chinese influence, you you can't sort of separate out the security and military aspects of that from the commercial and economic aspects, even though the Chinese do argue that the Belt and Road Initiative is primarily an economic and infrastructure-led initiative. And I think we, we are going to see a continued conversation about that. The other aspect of this that's interesting is, I mean, you have seen the Chinese quieten down towards the end of the year, at least, um, on their own publicity of the Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, it's been striking relative to 2017 how we've seen the Chinese try to focus on that. I mean, they're still talking about it, but much less in isolation and more sort of a more comprehensive foreign policy outlook. It'd be interesting to see whether this continues through 2019, because my sense is that the Chinese do feel and perceive that the Belt and Road, as much as they advertise it as a good foreign policy initiative for Xi Jinping, it also invites a lot of criticism. And it's a it's a point of focus for foreign countries to get at China's influence in the region. That's right. And, uh, you know, one final thing to add before we move on is that um, we've also seen this is related to the point about the Indo-Pacific, but we have seen the uh, United States, India, Japan sort of begin to lay down the foundations of a uh, competing approach to uh, mm-hmm. to dealing with the Belt and Road. And it's asymmetric because obviously they, they can't compete dollar for dollar with uh, Chinese financing offers in the region. Uh, but we are starting to see the beginnings of that. And I think that's going to be a much bigger theme going forward to 2019 and 2020. 
Um, well, so finally, I think this brings us to uh, point number six, uh, which, you know, I'm sure listeners have guessed by now that it's going to be the Korean Peninsula, uh, which I think was really the uh, the nexus of a lot of international attention uh, towards Asia this year, just given the historic nature of um, of symmetry that uh, transpired between that country's leader, Kim Jong-un, who decided that 2018 would be the year that he finally comes out of his shell and begins to interact with all sorts of foreign figures, uh, beginning with... Um, you know, South Korean President Moon Jae-in's envoys in uh, in March, uh, shortly uh, after the conclusion of the Winter Olympics, um, and eventually, obviously, leading to the highlight of the event, um, the highlight event of the year, which was the June 12th summit meeting between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump, a historic meeting, the first time a sitting U.S. president met a North Korean leader. Um, we've talked about North Korea a lot this year on the podcast. I think listeners by now sort of know where I generally stand on the issue. I mean, on the inter-Korean side, I think it's undeniable that there has been a lot of progress, probably less progress than President Moon Jae-in of South Korea wanted to see, to be honest, uh, given that the South Koreans were pushing for, you know, depending on the time of the year, it was either that we were going to get to an end of war declaration by the end of 2018, or that we were going to get to a fourth inter-Korean summit with Kim Jong-un traveling south of the demilitarized zone to come to Seoul. Neither of those things happened. Um, what we did get uh, just this week uh, was the symbolic groundbreaking ceremony uh, on the Inter-Korean Railroad Project, which is probably not going to actually proceed given the uh, limitations coming from sanctions. Um, mm-hmm. And on the on the other side, you know, uh, denuclearization uh, has been kind of the big word behind a lot of these diplomatic interactions, certainly on the U.S.-North Korea side, um, but really there's been no progress there. Uh, I mean, the, the gestures that North Korea has made, including um, sort of performatively shutting down its nuclear test site without any kind of uh, international verification or inspection, uh, partially dismantling a missile engine test site. Um, None of these things actually contribute to a freeze on North Korean production, which uh, Kim Jong-un on January 1st, 2018, we're almost a year from his uh, most recent New Year's speech. We'll get another one on January 1st, 2019. Uh, Kim Jong-un used that speech to order the mass production of uh, nuclear warheads and ballistic missiles and you know, I think multiple reports this year have suggested that that activity has been ongoing behind the scenes, that North Korea has effectively reduced the profile of its nuclear weapons program and its ballistic missiles by uh, no longer testing nuclear devices or testing ballistic missiles, at least as long as the diplomacy is going on, um, and has been happy to sort of reap the benefits there. Maximum pressure is effectively or, uh, over uh, Chinese and Russian implementation of UN Security Council resolutions sanctioning North Korea has really um, gotten a lot looser, uh, especially since the uh, since the summit between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. Um, so really, I think we've seen a transformation uh, on the Korean Peninsula that's undeniable, away from the brinksmanship and uh, dangerous rhetoric that was being traded in 2017, to a sort of cosmetic process of, um, of rapprochement between the United States and North Korea. There hasn't been really any fundamental change in either country's position towards the other. On the inter-Korean mm-hmm. side, we have seen um, more... Uh, more serious uh, change. Uh, and, and for listeners, if you're interested more in this, um, I will plug that the upcoming issue of the Diplomats magazine, uh, I do have a long article kind of reviewing 2018 uh, on the Korean Peninsula. But yeah, I mean, absolutely, I don't think we can conclude a, uh, a retrospective on Asian geopolitics in 2018 without talking about the Koreas. Absolutely not. Yeah. And I think it'll be interesting to see uh, to what extent we see continuity versus change in in 2019, right? Um, If if we continue to see this process where the inner Korean side of things continues to progress uh, far further down the road, more so than the denuclearization piece, uh, 
Um, and we see essentially the effective recognition that maximum pressure is over and there will be continued pressure from North Korea, I think, for openness and engagement. Um, it would be interesting to see what what approach the United States and other outside countries adopt, right? Because I, I think on the one hand, uh, there is this fear that um, the United States could grow very discontented towards the progress and we could see a reversion back to tensions that we saw back in, in 2017. But on the other hand, you, you could see an equally plausible scenario where President Trump uh, grows increasingly disinterested from North Korea as, as a win, uh, so to speak. Uh, and we see the United States lose interest uh, in the North Korea issue and inter the inter-Korean process continues to progress. Uh, and we see North Korea continue to drive the process uh, along with South Korea and the Moon administration, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I know we're not prognosticating too much on this episode, but it, it it's hard to say. I mean, I think Trump recognizes that North Korea was widely seen as one of his uh, only foreign policy wins. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, regardless of the reality, I think there is a big narrative around that, that, you know, it did help reduce tensions. And if, you know, markets continue what they're doing and Trump really has nowhere else to... Uh, find anything positive, uh, we might see North Korea again come to the center. Uh, and I think we saw that this week, right? I mean, as as we experienced the worst Christmas Eve, I think, since 1918 in, uh, in U.S. financial markets, you know, Trump tweets a picture of himself saying that he's staying late at the Oval Office on uh, on Christmas <laughs> Eve to work yeah. on the summit with Kim Jong-un. Um, so it's, yeah, it's... Uh, it's really, you know, hard to say where things are going to go. I think the North Koreans have been quite clear, though, in in their messaging that they're looking for the United States, that if there's going to be progress this time, the U.S. will have to abandon its all-or-nothing approach to uh, to denuclearization and sanctions relief and really uh, adopt a step-by-step a -step, uh, phased plan. And really, I mean, as long as John Bolton is there and as long as, you know, Pompeo continues to uh, keep this, you know, try to keep up the appearance of a process with North Korea, uh, it doesn't seem too likely that the U.S. is going to fundamentally reevaluate that unless there's uh, a serious change of heart. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's important to emphasize um, for listeners, too. I mean, we when we were at the Shangri-La Dialogue, um, which is a really good barometer for how various flashpoints are, are, are seen in terms of import uh, across different years, um, how this North Korea situation plays out will partly play into... Uh, its weightage, right, with respect to all these flashpoints. When we were at the Shangri-La Dialogue this year, North Korea, I think, had a very prominent role to play. Um, but there are other threats and challenges, the South China Sea, the Islamic State, and terrorism. And, and each year, you do see a little bit of change in terms of where these flashpoints rank. Um, and it'll be interesting to see where uh, 2019 sees North Korea relative to some of these other flashpoints. That's right. Well, uh, I think we'll leave it there for 2018 then, Prashant. Thanks a lot Sounds for joining good. me. Yeah. Yeah, good to be with you. Um, yeah, this episode was a little bit longer than usual, but we did have to cover a, uh, a lot of ground. So yep. for uh, our listeners, thanks a lot for um, listening to this episode. If you aren't a subscriber yet, um, you can do that on either Google Play or iTunes or any range of other providers, depending on your platform of choice to listen to podcasts. And if you are a subscriber, but you haven't yet left us a review, um, please do so on either uh, Google Play or iTunes. That really helps uh, helps get the show out there and uh thanks a lot for listening and a uh, very uh happy new year to uh all of our listeners uh, wherever they may be all over the world and we really hope to uh see you back in uh in 2019 with uh, a lot more to talk about when it comes to asian geopolitics so thanks a lot for listening